Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapun. This is the 17th episode of season two, and we are super happy to be back on the air, bringing you another series of episodes this winter spring of 2021. In the first semester, we brought you a former teacher of the year, a Kamehameha Schools middle school expert, a published author, the founder of the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, and a mindfulness expert, among many other educators and education leaders. In this second semester, we continue our commitment to bring you the stories of epic and amazing public, public charter, and independent school educators and education leaders. Here in Hawaii, we have a strong sense that though we teach in different sectors and we have our sector differences, we are all in it for our kids that they might thrive and live. Today, we dip into the charter school sector and talk to Florence Scott, a dynamic, versatile education professional with more than nine years managing academic programs and leading education initiatives while supporting and empowering students and her colleagues. She is an accomplished instructional leader, able to conceptualize goals and plan accordingly to address the needs of all students' unique learning modalities. She has a proven track record of developing and implementing curriculum activities that promote social, emotional, and cognitive development. Florence serves as a middle school humanities teacher, guide, coach, mentor, and navigator at Hawaii Technology Academy's Kauai campus. She also served in various English language arts positions in both South Carolina, Maryland, and Great Britain. She has a bachelor's degree in English and a master's degree in education. And now, here's my conversation with Florence Scott. Florence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Josh. I am so honored to be here. Awesome. So Florence, today was a was a regular school day, right? 
Yes. So here's my first question. What was the best thing that happened to you today? Oh, so my kids, my seventh graders are actually in the midst of we, uh, it's a Hawaiian history, and they are creating a a stop motion animation project that uh, addresses one of the uh, elements that contributed to the unification of the Hawaiian islands. And I have one student who is hand drawing her entire project. And so it's taking her forever, but it is absolutely stunning. And she is so invested in this project. She's having a great time and she's showing her knowledge. And it's, I mean, that's what we all live for, isn't it? It is. And, 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 you know, that's it, Florence, you know, it's, it's over. My eligibility for middle school is still there. I'm coming back. I want you to be my teacher Um, because, because I would have loved to have been working on something like that. That would have been fantastic. Um, that's, that's great. Um, okay. So you provided me with a letter written to your current school regarding future employment. And in that letter, you started with a mission statement and you wrote that it is your mission. And I quote, to establish a diverse, respectful environment where everyone is challenged to take ownership of his or her educational goals through active collaboration, insightful, critical thinking, energetic creativity, and effective communication. I empower students to question, grow, and evolve as lifelong learners. So I want to ask you a couple of probing questions here about your mission. So what does it look and sound and feel like when students take ownership of their learning? And I'll caveat that by saying, I think that ownership of learning is a phrase we're using a lot lately, but which might not be well understood. Okay, Uh, I agree. I think that there is um, a a lot of catchphrases in education. Um, In my classroom, for a student to take ownership of his or her learning, it means that they are fully invested in the inquiry process, that the standards are the standards. And I share the standards with my students. They see these are the teaching and learning standards that we have to cover this year. And how are we going to demonstrate that you understand these? And it becomes a mission for some. For some, it's a little bit more uh, difficult. But for a lot of kids, that's the first time that they really understand that they have expectations that aren't just by the teacher. Hmm. And so... They really invest in it, um, and they tend to um, make great strides. So if I'm one of your students, when when is the first time that I'm going to be aware that there's, you know, this thing called ownership of learning? And, and what, is the, what is that moment like, if you can describe that? Um, day one, day two. It's something I introduced very, very early in the school year. Uh, I have 180 days with my kids, and um, that's not a lot of time. But uh, day one, we talk about in this classroom, you are in control. I can't force you to do anything. I can't make you do this. I can 
facilitate. I can push, I can encourage, I can empower. But the bottom line is you're in control. This is your learning, your growth, your education. And how far you take it is entirely under your control. And, and what's the reaction? What's the reaction generally from the kids when you walk through that process? Uh, some are surprised. Some are um, dismissive. They've heard similar things before. Um, they've heard teachers say, you know, you're in control of this, but I can't. And, you know, I'm a mom of three. <laughs> I know that I cannot force them to do this work, mm -hmm. that the learning process is hard and we have to fail a lot to be successful. And so I want them to fail. I want them to grow. I want them to understand. And that's why I don't hide it when I make mistakes. Mm. You know, if I have a typo, I have a typo. I'm sorry I had a typo. Let's fix it. How do I fix that typo? That's, that's very cool. And of course, circling back to how you started when you were talking about that young person who's doing the sketching um, by hand, it sounds like she is fully invested and own and in ownership of her own learning. She is. That's... She is. And it takes her extra time. And that's, and she knows that I, I don't mind. Um, I tell them all the time, I would much rather you take your time and do your best work then rush through because you're afraid of a grade, which mm. is a whole nother topic, right? Mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> it totally is. That's right. So, so also in your, in your mission statement, you distinguish between teachers and educators. So how are educators mm -hmm. and teachers different and, and why make the distinction? Uh, so when I was first getting certified, my husband used to make comments. My husband wasn't a great student in school. Um, he didn't like school. He didn't have teachers that really engaged with him. And as a result, he kind of floated through and he did the bare minimum that he needed to graduate. And he's been a massively successful man. He served 22 years in the Air Force. He now works at KEO with homeless and housing. I mean, he's a successful man, but school education mm. didn't speak to him. Mm. And he used to say... He always says that teachers teach content and educators teach students. Mm. And the difference is that teachers, you, you deliver the content and the kid it decides whether or not he or she is going to engage with it and learn it and take the test and pass the test. Whereas an educator engages with the student that is in front of him or her and meets that student where they are academically, emotionally, you know, socially, culturally, to where that student is empowered to grow from wherever they are. Mm -hmm. And in that, that risk-taking, that vulnerability is allowed and students mm -hmm. consequently grow tremendously. Wow. So connected question. Um, <laughs> and, and the last one kind of connected directly to your mission um, statement. What first steps, small or large, did you take way, way back at the beginning of your time in education to become a student-centered educator or an advocate of student ownership of learning? Oh, uh, concrete steps that I took. I think it's always been my nature. Um, I was a mom first and I knew that 
sitting my kids down and making them do multiplication tables didn't help them, but putting them in the kitchen and having them help me convert recipes helped them understand fractions and mm-hmm. multiplication and all of those things. And, and I didn't even come into, I mean, I was a TA for years and years. Um, uh, probably, oh gosh, six or seven years. I was a TA. I started as a kindergarten aide, and then I went into actually being a teacher's assistant in a third and fourth grade classroom. And then it dawned on me that I can teach and Mm. I can be really, really good at it. Mm. But being student centered was honestly, I, I never thought of it I thought that's how it was supposed to be. I never really had a name for it until I came into education. I think the reason why I'm asking that question is because, you know, the process of getting teachers ready to be teachers is, it has been a particular process for more than a hundred years. Um, and you, you know, you go through these colleges of education and I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination that that training is training in student-centered learning. So it feels to me, maybe that's changing, I hope, but, but to me, it, you have to be pretty deliberate in your practice of becoming an educator who's student-centered um, in order to make that actually work. Because the forces that work against that, like, well, and we'll talk about this later, grading, for example, um, are, are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think about that? Um, I agree. I didn't, I didn't come through a traditional training program. Um, I was really, I was, so I didn't start college till I was 40. I finished my undergrad very quickly, about two and a half years, and then um, was going to go for my master's immediately, but didn't want to work full time and go to school full time for another year. Mm. (laughs) So I went through a a program for alternative certification of teachers, and it was um, a program in South Carolina called PACE. Mm. And it was basically a... uh, on the job training. Like I would go to seminars on the weekends and during um, Thanksgiving break and winter break and and everything else. But I was also in the classroom teaching. Mm. And so I honestly don't know a whole lot about traditional um, Mm. programs. So I can't speak to that in any, with any um, Mm. truth. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, me too. I, I dropped out of a teacher training program at University of Iowa. Um, I was very frustrated with the classes that I was being forced to take. Um, and I ended up just um, getting hired at a series of independent schools over 17 years. And I learned uh, as I went. Um, mm-hmm. It was on-the-job training, as you described. So that's super interesting. So Florence, in the same letter, you talk about modeling a growth mindset, which is another phrase being used a lot lately, um, especially related to Carol Dweck's work. I think our listeners know what the phrase means. My question has to do with education in general. So sorry, this is a big meta question, but how, how do we in this country, in this state, get to where, let's say, 80% of our faculty our student-centered educators with a growth mindset. Like, what is what's the secret sauce in your mind to getting an entire faculty into a growth mindset? We have to make it so that the faculty aren't afraid of failing. There's so many different pressures. I mean, and this is 
there's so many different pressures and so many things and the initiatives keep coming and coming and teachers are afraid of failure. We're afraid that we're going to be judged either professionally where it, it hits us in our pocketbook. And let's be honest, teacher salary is another issue that, that creates a gap between the, those that want to teach and the retention of teachers. But if we can create an environment that teachers can stop being afraid to fail and start understanding that we have to take risks in order to help our kids know that it's okay to take risks and that it's okay to fail and it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, Monty Siri is a, a blogger that I follow and he always says, it's just school. It's not the end of the world. Mm. Wow. And it's those of us that are in education, the majority of those of us that are in education are here because we truly love our kids and we want to help them be the very best individual that they can be. Mm. Whatever their path is, we want them to be the best at it. But if we're tied in through testing and all these jumping through hoops for the evaluations and, and this initiative's coming at us and that initiative's coming at us, we don't know which way is up. So how can we model that? We need to get rid of all of that stuff and make it so that teachers can teach mm. and be treated as the professionals that they are. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, I did an episode with Christy Federley, who's the campus director mm. at HTA Maui, and that was early yes. in season one. Um, mm -hmm. And we had a wonderful conversation about um, something that she tried in her classroom that was admittedly a very risky bet, um, and it kind of blew up on her. But the she she learned so much from that moment about herself, about her students, about what she wanted to be able to do as an educator. So, do you do you have an example like that where you really rolled the dice on something and you weren't sure that it was going to work? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Too many to count. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if we're, if we're going to be risk takers, so we're, we're going to fall flat sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, an example of that one. I tried Poetry Club. Um, in fact, this is really, really recent. Um, I decided I wanted to do a poetry club, an after-school club with high school students. I'm a poetry fanatic. I love poetry. I love music and poetry in music. And um, so I decided to do a poetry club for high school students. I teach middle, but at HTA, I can cross those lines. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got a couple of, of students that were involved. And then we decided at the last minute to do poetry out loud, mm. um, which we were under a super tight deadline. It was really, I mean, like we had less than a month. They gave us an extension so that we could participate. Mm. And so we're super grateful that we got to participate. But at the same time, it was so rushed and it was so chaotic. And we jumped in and we didn't really know what we were doing. And so we're reading the instructions and the requirements, like the day we're trying to record. And it was chaos. <laughs> but... <laughs> It was, I mean, we, we got a submission. Um, she did not make it to state, which we 
knew she would not um, <laughs> because we had no time. But now we know that next year we're going to start this early. We're going to start a poetry club at the beginning of the school year and we're going to make it open to middle school and high school students. And mm. we're going to then have that um, across the grade levels collaboration. Of course, the high school students are the only ones that can participate in Poetry Out Loud, but then they have that feedback from the middle school students. And so hopefully mm. next year will be much better. Yeah, that's a great example. A, a real roll of the dice under a really tight t- uh, uh, timeline. Um, but there you go. You're moving forward with it. That's very cool. Um, so Florence, you teach at a charter school on the island of Kauai, HTA, uh, which mm-hmm. does Hawaii Technology Academy, which does blended learning on all of its many island campuses. So for those who do not, do not know the term, what is blended learning? So in its purest form, blended learning is a blend of online, face-to-face, small group, individual instruction. So it's about finding the best way to deliver instruction and work with students to help each student be his or her best Mm -hmm. academically and socially. That some of them need more small groups, some need more individual work. And at HTA, we work to make sure that all of their needs are met. So what does it look and sound and feel like in a blended environment? Well, um, so this year is my first year at HTA. And because of COVID-19, it has been pretty chaotic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We started out full virtual, but under normal circumstances, we would have uh, an independent day for students to work um, on independent assignments, passion projects, that kind of stuff. And they would, um, if we have field studies, those would be scheduled on those days. And then we have two face-to-face days on campus where they come in and we um, work and teach in a more traditional setting. And then they have, we have a virtual day where they meet us and we do synchronous classes online through Zoom. Mm. And so you enroll your students' parents as learning coaches. So what is a learning coach and, and what example or two could you give me of a parent supporting one of your students with coaching? Oh, okay. Well, a learning coach is exactly what it sounds like. Our learning coaches are the student support at home, um, keeping them. They're not expected to teach content. They're expected to keep students accountable for what they're supposed to be doing. We all know that um, some middle school students are not as um, motivated to finish assignments or to do things on a schedule. Um, They'd rather go surf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had of one of mine today. He said, he said, if I'm not in class tonight, tomorrow, it's not because I didn't go surfing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a, a learning coach's responsibility is to monitor and ensure that the student is doing what they're supposed to be doing at home. Mm-hmm. And it is a constant communication between the teacher, the learning coach and the student and Like when I send an email to a student, the learning coach is automatically CC'd on it. Mm. When I send an email to a learning coach, the student is automatically CC'd on it um, because it's a a three-way conversation. Uh, Ways that parents have supported, oh gosh, so many ways. Um, I've had parents that reached out and said, hey, he's really not understanding this assignment. Can you touch base with him? 
Um, I've had parents that I have reached out to and said, I'm concerned about this. And the, immediately the student has, you know, addressed the whatever it was that I was concerned about. Hmm. Um, I'm in communication right now. Um, my students were chosen to be um, we're participating in the We Are America project, my eighth graders. And um, so we have I have one parent that has been concerned about privacy, her, her students' privacy. Mm -hmm. And so she and I've been on the phone probably six or seven times over the last couple of months just discussing and and um, making sure that she's comfortable with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's so many other examples. Mm -hmm. And our learning coaches are pivotal to our students' education. Right. And and how do you prepare parents to be coaches? Or how does HTA do that writ large? Um, well, I know that there are several learning coach trainings that parents have to attend at the beginning of the school year. Um, just like students go to orientation, parents go to orientation for learning coaches. And they're walked through step by step by step how to do this, how to do that, where do you find this information? How do you approach this situation? Hmm. And I'm, I'm super intrigued by the idea that you have a very diverse group of people as your, as your students' parents. Um, mm -hmm. And in what ways do you potentially tap into that diversity of experience? For example, like, you know, if my, if my daughter was at HTA, um, you know, I'm a former chef, former hotel manager, former teacher, uh, you know, I've worked retail. My wife is, you know, the publisher of Hawaii Business Magazine. Like, how do you, is, are there ways that you tap into the, the life stories and the expertise of your parents as part of the, the coaching process and the learning process? Absolutely. Absolutely. We will reach out to parents and say, hey, this is a project that we're looking for. This is something that we'd like to do. Is there anybody that can jump in and help us out? Mm. Um, we ask for parent volunteers. I was just on a Zoom call with a parent this afternoon uh, asking for some, some support for uh, we're doing TED Talks in fourth quarter mm. with seventh grade. And this parent has experience with um, directing and actors and producing and that kind of stuff. And so um, he's going to come in and help our kids with with mm. that realm of things. Um some we don't know as much about, or I shouldn't say we, I don't know as much about. Um, uh, as I said, I'm still learning, still growing at HTA being my first year. Uh, I know that I have a lot of resources that I have yet to tap. Mm. I think this notion of, of the diversity of your parents is one of the most, and parents as learning coaches, is one of the most intriguing things for me about HTA. Um, you know, here, here I am, I'm, I'm a podcaster. Um, I just got invited uh, by a head of school at a small independent school on the North Shore here on Oahu to come in and Zoom with his students who are working on developing a podcast. Like, that's awesome. Mm -hmm to get an mm -hmm. opportunity to do that. And it makes me feel included. Um, so I, I love that idea. And I think that that'll be really fun for you as you continue forward to tap into um, all of the, uh, you know, the people who serve as parents. Um, so that's very cool. So hey everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Florence Scott is a humanities teacher, coach, mentor, and guide in the blended learning program that is Hawaii Technology Academies. Kauai campus. 
So Florence, in that same letter to HTA that we've been referencing, you talk about, and this is a phrase I totally love, inventive teaching and learning techniques. I love the word inventive. Um, I would love for you to share one or two specific examples of projects or curriculum that showcase your inventive technique. Oh, okay. Um, well, one of my favorites is a presentation that um, I was, uh, so Ellen Fox is now, she's now with Triad um, Restorative Justice in North Carolina, I think. But she at the time was teaching and we had partnered up to create a unit for the Selma to Montgomery March, um, looking at voting rights and we were trying really hard to figure out how do we show our kids what it's like to be promised something and to have it taken away or to have to meet all these extra criteria. Wow. So, so we, we, you know, what do middle schoolers care about? Middle schoolers care about playtime. Now <laughs> we're not taking that away from them. And um, fairness. Okay, well, this leads into that. And you know what? Candy. Middle schoolers. <laughs> Middle schoolers like candy. Yeah. So we made a big deal about this one day every, because, you know, people are absent and this and that. So we set it a week in advance and we said, everybody who comes to class on this day gets a lollipop. Every single person that walks in the door is going to get a lollipop this day. Mm. And we built it up, made a big deal about it. We had banners that we hung around the schools because we were at different schools at the time. Um, we made a really big deal about these lollipops and the kids came in and they all sat down and they're all sitting in their chairs and they're waiting for their lollipops and they're so excited. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Oh, you know, before we do that, I'm going to have to ask you to take a test. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know what? It's no big deal. Just pass the test and then I can give you the lollipop. You know, wow. I just can't give you a lollipop in class. I mean, that that would be wrong. It's it's school. You're not supposed to get candy in class. And it's a blow pop. You're going to be chewing gum. You know what? Just take this test. And then I can tell Edmund that you took a test to get the lollipop. <laughs> and so they had to take this test. And it was all about the history of the blow pop. Like they had to. It was, mm -hmm. what are you, well, when was it invented? What are the ingredients? What were the original flavor? I mean, like stuff that they would have no clue. Right. Mm. And they're getting really, really frustrated. And they're like, but this isn't fair. And I'm like, you know what? You don't have to take the test. And they get all excited. I said, you know what? Give me $10. Give me $10. Wow. And then I'll give you the lollipop. Wow. That's <laughs> remarkable. One, one kid actually pulled out $10. He's like, here, here, take it. So I took his $10. I gave him his lollipop. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting there sucking on his lollipop. Everybody else is getting really, really mad. And I'm like, you know what? Guys, this is what literary te literacy tests were like. Mm -hmm. This is what poll taxes were like. Mm -hmm. You were promised the right to vote. And mm -hmm. then you had to take a test or you had to pay a fine in order to get the right to vote. They didn't forgive me for about three days. But wow. <laughs> wow. And, and, and it made such an impression. Yeah, I can imagine how outraged they were. Um, <laughs> and, and also, like, at what point did, did the actual you know, the phraseology around civil rights come into the picture in that example? The very next day. Mm. The very next day we did a gallery walk of 
um, actually images from the Selma to Montgomery March. That was our, for that unit, that was our central text. And then we had all of these extras, like we brought in primary source documents and we brought in um, uh, just extra texts, uh, you know, not really non, not really fiction, but definitely more creative fiction, creative non-fictions that were, and we brought in poetry and we brought in the, um, so it was all of these different texts, but the central text was the Teaching Tolerance Now mm. Learning for Justice documentary. Mm. Um, the, the, what was the, to- what is the topic of, what is the title of that? Um, it's The Bridge to the Ballot. That's mm. what it's called. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the very next day when we actually did our, our, that was our hook. That was our, you know, let's get them passionate about this. Mm-hmm. Let's get them really invested in the fairness of it. Mm. And so that's... Wow. That's that's such an awesome example. I, I have completely different context, different scenario, but I took my La Pietra students through um, something kind of similar. And to this day, Florence, 15 years later, there are some students who are still mad at me um, for for some of the things that happened in terms of choices that got made um, and decisions that got made. And and for me, that's just gravy on the locomoco, right? You that, exactly. that, that just means that they've retained it in the best possible way. Um, exactly. That's fantastic. So, okay, um, brief side question here. Um, I was interested to read um, in your resume that you implemented a school-wide hour of code program at one point. So there, yes. so you are more than a humanities educator. Like what? Like you do tell, <laughs> do tell. Well, my first year, when we first moved to South Carolina, I was um, finishing up my undergrad degree and I wanted to get into the classroom. And so I was really lucky that um, Dr. Barber, who is the principal at Pontiac Elementary, offered me a position. At, it was a TA position. Um, and she said, uh, basically, I want you in my school. These are the positions I have available. What would you like? And I said, I want to do the computer lab. And she said, why? I said, because that's where I'm the weakest and that's where I need to grow the most. And what better motivation than having to teach it? Mm. So, um, yeah, I was in the computer lab and I got an email about hour of code and I was like, "Mm, yeah, we're doing this. So we, I created a resource document and split it up. It was uh, K through uh, five K through five. And so I had it split up according to grade level appropriate coding uh, games. And that's what we did in the computer lab for the whole week. Mm. And about 90, 94, I think 93 and a half percent of the students earned their hour of code certificate that week. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so funny. I, I remember Florence back um, when I was teaching at Punahou in the 90s uh, that my history department chair, a guy named Mark, um, made an announcement that he was going to be teaching the following year in the math department. And the whole place blew up. They just didn't even know how to handle that idea. Like, you can't cross those lines, you know? <laughs> um, that was pretty funny. So, okay. Now, this this is also a bit of a meta question here, but back in... In 2020, last year, you transitioned from a public school, Kapa'a Middle School on Kauai, to a charter school, Hawaii Technology Academy. Um, So we've been talking a lot in Hawaii um, 
about many va'a, one voyage, many canoe, one voyage, meaning we are all educators in it for all of our kids, public, private, and charter. So um, I think, what are your thoughts about this? Maybe another way to ask it would be like, what do you see as the role of charter schools here in Hawaii? You know, granted that you're just in your first year and coming to understand what the culture is like. Oh, oh, that's a great question. Um, So I see the role of a charter school as the the stopgap between the kids that maybe need a little bit more individualist attention than they get in a public school. Um, and it could be that the students need that, <clears throat> excuse me, and it also could be that the parents have chosen that role for their children. But a charter school, I'll be honest, I never thought I'd go to a charter school. I mm-hmm. loved public education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the mission and vision of HTA pulled me. Um, I was actually looking for a new school for my daughter when I came across HTA and was like, wow, mm. this school aligns so closely with my own educational philosophy. How can I not just, hey, let's try and see what happens. Maybe it'll work. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the role. Well, the original, the original law, 1994, the charter school law established the first, I think it was 25 charter schools to be um, education incubators, if you will, innovation incubators. And they were, they were mm-hmm. supposed to be demonstration schools for the rest of the public school system, um, which by and large they have been um, over the years. And for some reason, for a number of reasons, we've been able to avoid some of the worst um, sort of recriminative, nasty kind of finger pointing that happens between public and charter schools that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, happens in other states. So I think what I'm interested in is your perspective on um, the ways that HTA can serve as a, a demonstration school for the community at large, both public and private. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um I do think that, especially since um, COVID-19 and the the need to shift from traditional uh, kids in seats in the classrooms um, approach to education, that HTA has been and continues to be a leader in that role. I think that we are... um, on the forward edge of the ne- the necessary um, implementations that, uh, sorry, the necessary requirements for meeting the needs of uh, um. a blended environment. Um, I don't know how much has been discussed at the administration level as mm-hmm. far as how much we have helped. I do know that I have kept in touch with several of my colleagues from Kapa'a Middle, Mm. and we text and and speak regularly about different instructional strategies and different platforms that I have used in the past and still use here at HTA uh, that they weren't familiar with that have helped them. Mm. That's great. 
That's absolutely fantastic that you're continuing those collegial conversations um, that cross the two sectors. That's that's very very cool. Um, and I and I imagine that Hawaii Technology Academy was pretty uniquely positioned when COVID hit more than a year ago um, because of its blended learning focus. Um, and so hopefully in the future, as everybody copes with some form of in-person and or virtual instruction, um, that, you know, HTA will, will be able to provide uh, some of that demonstration material and it'll help everybody. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so let's, I'm going to, Florence, I'm going to ask you the, exactly the same question that I asked a previous guest a couple of weeks ago. His name is Jonathan Medeiros, and he teaches humanities at um, Kapa'a High School. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to ask him about teacher evaluation. And here's exactly the way that I posed the question to him. So I'm going to, I'm going to pose it to you. Um, let's imagine a new and fresh conversation about teacher effectiveness. Clearly, Teacher evaluation conversations are emotional and at times angry or difficult, oftentimes because they are tied to scores or grades or other hard metrics. So mm-hmm. I, I want to reimagine teacher evaluation, and I, I don't even like that word, but we have to use it um, for mm-hmm. me. So how, how do we as a culture, Florence, get to a place where evaluation of our teachers is by and large positive and uplifting and nurturing if you agree that that is a good goal? Oh, I definitely agree that that is a good goal. Um, And this is perfect timing because I actually just had my evaluation for this year. Oh, okay. A couple of days ago. Cool. (laughs) Um, So this is my take on teacher evaluations. And it may, I don't know. Um, I think that teacher evaluations need to stop being focused on student data but instead focus on the teacher setting a goal that will benefit their students. So if I set a goal to uh, improve my feedback, which is the goal that I set for myself this year, I want to improve my feedback so that my students utilize it Mm. and um, give them the freedom and the opportunity to revise their work as often as they want so that they can improve and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my goal. It's not about student test scores. It's not about this percentage of students will grow this much. It's not, it's not anything like that. It's I'm setting a goal that I want to improve my feedback so that my students can utilize it more effectively. And what I found through that goal and through my, my tracking of the data is that students by and large kept coming back and redoing assignments. I have a student who no matter what her feedback, or I'm sorry, no matter what the grade is, she could get full points on an assignment. And I give her feedback that says, okay, this was great, but maybe next time try and take it to this level. Mm -hmm. She'll go back and revise it, Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't have anything to do with her points because she's trying to get better. Mm Um, And if we can take teacher evaluations away from what we can't control, I can't control what my students do. I can't control how they feel on that specific standardized test day. I can't control how they're going to perform. I don't know what happened in their house that morning or on their way to school today. 
whether they had breakfast this morning or not. I can't control any of that. So how can I tie my performance to their outcomes? Mm. I, I tie my performance to something I can control. And as a result, it improves student outcomes. Mm -hmm. So you wrote a, a very compelling and powerful essay that might be published in our, um, if I if I got your facts correct here, might be published in our um, Department of Education newsletter, and it was about grades. So mm -hmm. in, in what ways, Florence, do grades get in the way of student-driven learning? I just want to get that on the record here. <laughs> grades are an anchor when it comes to student-driven learning because the, all they care about is the grade. And all the parents want to see is the grade. Mm -hmm. um, and grades drag them down. It's not about growth. It's not about um, learning. It's about what they get. What they get. What's, what's my score? Mm -hmm. Instead of how much did I learn? And if we can change grading, and I know that we have to have grades. I I don't like it, but I know that we have to have it. You know, I can't just do away with grades within my classroom. Um, we still live in a society that grades are required and they have to have a score so that they can move on to the next grade level or so they can, you know, apply to the GPA with their college applications and all those other things. So we can't just arbitrarily do away with grades. But if we could create an environment where the student and the teacher and the learning coach collaborate. Mm. These are the standards that we looked at at the beginning of this quarter. These are the standards that we taught and learned and discussed. Where do you feel like you scored? Why do you think that? Let's talk about this evidence. Let's look at this standard. Let's break it down again. What does it mean to cite multiple examples of text evidence that most closely or, um, I'm drawing a blank on the standards exact text, but mm -hmm. have the student as a partner, just like teachers are a partner in their evaluation conversation, students should be a partner in their grading conversation. And it shouldn't be a grade until the student and the teacher and the learning coach all agree that that's what the student has earned. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. I have a lot of regrets Florence, about my life, uh, my 17 years as a teacher in terms of the extent to which I just simply participated in that grading process, which treated every everything as sort of a finished moment. You handed in something that was finished and you became, uh, you were evaluated on that. And I, and I look back now, there were moments where I broke out of that, sometimes in some pretty awesome ways. Um, but still, I have, I have some real strong feelings about the fact that I was part of that. Um, so hopefully, we will, we will push back against that over the next decades. Um, and we'll get more to, to a learning journey as you describe. That's really cool. Um, so everybody stay with us after this short break, we will come back with more questions for Florence Scott. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to RemarkablePeople.com. Thank you.
Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Welcome back, everyone. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Today, we are with Florence Scott, a humanities educator at Hawaii Technology Academy's Kauai campus. So Florence, um, let's talk about water resources. Um, this is something my Rapoon family has been involved in for decades here in Hawaii. Um, you, mm -hmm. have, you have your sixth graders read Linda Sue Park's book, A Long Walk to Water, as the gateway to looking at water um, issues, and you use the web-based resource called Water Guardians. So what mm -hmm. were your first steps into this project, and in what ways did you see student engagement becoming manifest along the way? Well, the first step was I had students track their water usage over the course of a week. How many, how much water did they use? And there's a, um, a H2O for Life has a water tracking um, uh, sheet that we can use. And so students track their water and they see how much water they use. And then we compare it to water usage from people in different parts of the world. And so that right there was a huge eye opener for students because, you know, they don't think that 33 gallons is a lot in a week until they see that people in um, Sudan are lucky if they get six gallons in a week of usage. And so there's this huge uh, cognitive dissonance in them that they're like, wait a minute, people don't have access. And then we turn it into, we look at um, the Water Guardians programming that takes us through the water process from the Mississippi River and all the way down into the ocean. And um, so this is a really great way to show students that um, water is, they hear it, but to show them they see it, the dangers of water shortage. Mm. And so uh, their, pro their final projects were incredible. They came up with ideas of how we could save more water. They're talking about creating um, 
grain barrels at their house so that they can um, use those to wash the car kind of stuff. Wow. Um, so it's really, really cool. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so I, I taught history for 17 years and I'm a history geek, I admit it. Um, so I loved in your Twitter feed references to a project um, you were doing with students titled We Are America, and you referenced this a few minutes ago. So what is mm -hmm. this all about? It seems particularly germane in light of January 6th. Yes. Um, so the We Are America project started with uh, Jessica Lander did it, it with her group, it, with her students. She's a high school teacher in um, Lander, Massachusetts. And no, anyway, um, I'm getting names mixed up. But she, uh, so what it is, is we teach history as moments. We teach history as these big wars and signing the Declaration of Independence and mm -hmm. um, the civil rights movement as a whole. But really, history is in those moments, those individual moments where individual people are changed for the good or for the bad because of internal and external motivation. And so students are challenged to write their own Narrative. So they write a short story and we're publishing this book that is um, a collection of my students' change stories. What are those moments, big or small in their life, mm. that fundamentally changed who they are, how they see themselves, how they see the world? Um, and so this is the third year of the program with, um, with Jess. And so we get the curriculum and we go through the whole process and we start with what makes an American? What is an American? And if I'm an American, am I a bystander or am I an active participant? And even, this is a hard one for students to get sometimes, but even being a bystander is a choice. Mm -hmm. So in every moment we make a choice. How are we going to be? How are we going to live? What kind of person am I going to be mm. right now? Mm. Wow, that's amazing. I was I was thinking about back when I was teaching at La Pietra, I, I became aware of, you know, there's something called uh, the great courses um, where, you know, you could get these lectures. Um, at, back then it was on DVD, I think. Um, and there was one in particular called The American Identity, and it was a series of lectures by Dr. Patrick Allett out of Emory University. Long story short, I actually was able to get in contact with him and had him facilitate a seminar with my students after they had watched a series of his lectures. And that was one of those really neat moments where you get to reach outside the classroom, right? Um, mm -hmm. And they were like so like starstruck, like, oh my God, a history professor is coming into our class. Um, so that sounds great. So in, in November of last year, Florence, you were one of 58 teachers selected for a History Day professional development program, um, an awesome thing noted by our Public Charter School Commission in its newsletter. So wow, like what excites you about your selection? What is this going to be all about? Well, so the National History Day program, uh, the way that it was set up was so that I would be able to facilitate National History Day projects for my students. And it was an absolutely fantastic seminar. Um, I learned <laughs> so much that, you know, my brain immediately, when you said that, my brain is immediately flooded with all of these memories and images and things. Um, but it was all about learning to use primary source documents effectively so that I can help my students um, participate in National History Day. Mm -hmm. 
we chose not to actually participate in the competition this year just because we had so many other projects going on. Um, but we are definitely, it's on the list for next year. All, all three grade levels for me are going to be participating. Wow. Um, so, yeah. okay, so related question then, and this is, mm-hmm. I'm, I've been looking forward all week to asking you about this because of my time as a history teacher. So you you shared with me a number of websites you love and use as resources in your teaching, and I'm just going to list them real quickly. Learning for Justice, Facing History and Ourselves, We Need Diverse Books, the Gilda Lerman Institute of American History, Rethinking Schools, Let's Change Education, Southern Poverty Law Center, Trauma-Sensitive Schools. So... I want to talk about one site, the Gilder Lerman um, Institute of American History. So let's say, Florence, that I'm a, uh, and this probably wouldn't be true on your campus, but you know, be that as it may, I'm a standard sage on the stage lecture and test type of teacher across the hall, but I'm intrigued by what folks are talking about in terms of working with the primary sources. So walk walk me through the first small steps of becoming a teacher who wants to train kids to be historians rather than fill them up with history. Okay. So I use, we use a strategy that we, that I learned at the national history day project um, webinar or um, seminar that was it's observe, reflect question. And so we use that for all primary source documents in our classroom And so uh, what I did is I actually created a slideshow that um, breaks it down, observe, and then reflect. And so there's embedded questions that I would then share that slideshow with my colleague um, so that they could see the step-by-step process of how we're asking students to look at this primary source document in a... um, very real but relevant way. We're not just asking them to look at it and cite text evidence because that's only half the problem. Right. We have to be able to make those connections. Mm-hmm. Right, that's amazing. I, I I remember, you know, at one point when I was teaching that I, I became very, I was teaching high school, very frustrated. Do you know what the document-based question is within the <laughs> AP, right? And and mm-hmm. so it's it's such a, I'm sorry to say this. I'm just going to say it's such a boring process um, where you sit down without any prior warning and you get this DBQ and there's a question and a bunch of documents and you have to suddenly, you know, go through them and figure out what they're all about and make those connections that you're talking about. So I just tossed that and said, I'm going to give you all the documents ahead of time. What I'm not going to give you is the question. You can nosh on what you think the question nice. will be all you want. Um, and I remember this at, at this one point where I finally handed out the test, which was just essentially the, the question because they'd had the documents. And this one student stood up and slammed the whole thing down on the ground and said, I knew it. This is exactly the question I thought was coming. And I was like, Shazam, you know, we've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've hit it there. Um, so, yeah, so that's really cool. So your, your grade six students wrote constellation myths in collaboration yes. with the Library of Congress. So in what mm-hmm. ways did your students use the Library of Congress as a resource for this project? And in what ways did this move students from I hate reading or I'm not a good writer to a love of reading and a love of writing? Well, it's one step. It's not creating. I mean, it's not, we don't 
it's not a flip switch in in students. If they don't, they say that they don't like reading. It's not one lesson that flips their mind. Um, it's a series of uh, intentional choices that they're provided so that they can feel in control. But um, the Library of Congress, so we do, because of our humanities, we looked at ancient Greece and we were studying our ancient Greece unit. And in conjunction with that, we were doing Greek myths. And so I you know, got in touch with the Library of Congress and scheduled their, um, they have a, what they call Stories in the Stars webinar. And we did some Greek myth work ahead of time. And we did some constellation observations ahead of time. And then we went into this webinar and they, the two ladies from the Library of Congress taught my students these different myths and how they transitioned into the stories in the scar, the stars. And so the kids then were challenged to write their own myths. And some wrote, like did graphic novels and others we did. We have a Pixton EDU um, platform that we like for um, creating comic books. And so some of them did that digitally. Some of them did it on paper. Some of them actually just wrote a Greek myth. But the storyline was that whoever their protagonist was had to end up as a constellation. Mm. And they had a great time with it. They had a lot of fun. And we were so grateful to the Library of Congress. There's so many resources out there to bring in those expert opinions. It's just a matter of asking and finding it in the schedule. Mm. Wow, that's so neat. That's exactly what Jonathan Medeiros at Kapa'a High School talked about in terms of turning ownership over to the kids, that ultimately mm -hmm. you go through these series of exercises, but then they get to do their own version of it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's very, very cool. So Florence, we, we're coming down to the end here. This hour has absolutely flown by. Um, so a couple more questions for you. So yesterday you watched a film that I made and just recently released uh, called mm -hmm. the Innovation Playlist, and I appreciate that you that you watched it, and you noted to me that it got some feelings stirred up in you. So, what what were those feelings? Uh, pride, pride, mm. so much pride, so much um, joy in seeing those kids and those teachers working together to change the world. I mean, you know, we tell our kids that they're they're, you know, they are in power. And I tell mine all the time that they have to understand the world so that they can take control of it and, and change it for the better. And um, those teachers and those kids are already doing that over there in, in Waimea Canyon. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, uh, it was really a powerful insight into what is actually going on in some of our schools. Mm. You know, I've, I've only been on the island for a couple of years, so I'm still learning. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that was my intent. My intent, and I really appreciate your your feedback. My intent was to showcase on several islands some of the things that are actually going on. Um, mm -hmm. and, and part of that is just combating what is oftentimes very negative headlines about education in Hawaii. Um, and because it just seems to be the thing that people gravitate towards in their newspapers or, or online newsletters. And I just wanted to push back real hard against that. Um, so well, I, I think you were successful. Um, <laughs> that narrative is, is across the country and really around the world, you know, and so to have someone like you that's doing that kind of work is really, um, important for 
it's important to get out there. Mm, thank you. And I, I fully intend to keep doing it. And this podcast is another way to do it because I've, I'm have i closing in on 50 episodes now and each one has been a unique moment, as you describe about history, uh, where somebody gets to share what they do as an educator and how they engage students. Um, so last question then, and, and oof, this is a big meta one, so a 10,000 foot level question. So here goes. Um, okay. we, we're in a moment where there is a ton of talk about product-based learning and learning that is focused on being job ready and adaptive in the scary age of acceleration. And we talk a lot about CTE or career and technical academies. So in, in light, uh, Florence, of computer education, AI, coding, software development, et cetera, what is the case to be made for deep dives into the humanities? It's stronger than ever because of all of that, because we're becoming so um, tech-based and tech-dependent that it's our humanity that makes us human. It brings us together. It creates the connections that cannot be mimicked through AI, through technology. Um, yeah, it's, it's compassion, humility, uh, vulnerability. Those are truly human characteristics. And those are the connections that we need to move humanity forward. Mm. And, and I'm going to sneak another one in here at the very end, um, because I've interviewed so many middle school educators, which was kind of a surprise to me that I, when I started this podcast, I would get so attracted to the middle school experience. Mine was... Because middle schoolers are awesome. Yeah, they are. And But, but my, <laughs> my middle school experience was absolutely crummy. Um, so what is it, Florence, um, about middle school uh how do we keep it from becoming a soul crushing experience? How do we, how do we make it a springboard for the creativity and imagination and innovation that is elementary school? You're going to get a side of me that you might not like, but here goes. Okay. Um, the problem is that we treat middle schoolers like they're high schoolers. And this is across every school district that I've ever worked in. Um, we treat middle schoolers like they're high schoolers and we forget that they're still children. Developmentally, they're still in concrete thinking. They can't think even abstractly until they get into eighth grade and for some, even the second half of eighth grade. And yet we expect them to conform to these high school expectations. And then when we add in the social pressure, when we add in the conflicting messages about sexuality, about um, keeping up with the, with the Joneses, so to say, the, the pressures that these kids are under are enormous. And that's what becomes soul crushing mm -hmm. is because they don't have an outlet for it. They don't have an escape for it and they can't process it yet. So we need to treat sixth graders like they're 11 years old. I mean, these kids are 11 years old when they come to us in sixth grade. They are children. Mm. They're not like children. They are children. Mm. Across middle school, there is a sense of get them ready for high school. And instead of 
letting them be middle schoolers and enjoy the middle school experience and love learning. We take that from them. We, the education system steals the love of learning from our kids through grades, through arbitrary testing, through Mm -hmm. inflexible requirements that don't allow for the individual. We're not, we shouldn't be expecting them to live up to adult expectations because they're not adults. They're not mini adults, they're children. And we need to treat them as such and respect them as such. And therein lies the reason why I would like to come back to middle school and and have you as one of my teachers, Florence Scott. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Josh, but I, I, I'm no different from any other. I mean, all of my colleagues are just as passionate. I'm so blessed to mm. be surrounded by people that truly just love kids and want them to be their best selves. Mm, that's fantastic. So Florence Scott, Humanities Educator at Hawaii Technology Academy's Kauai Campus, thank you so much for being on the show today. We appreciate you and we want you and your family to stay safe as we hopefully come near the end of this COVID pandemic. Um, And we look forward to checking in with you again in the future. Thank you so much, Josh. I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you, awesome and epic listeners, for supporting this podcast and giving it a 100% five-star rating. We appreciate you and thank you for all your wonderful written reviews. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. To join the What School Could Be community, and man, oh man, what an incredible community it is, go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. If you love these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send us your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MLTS in Hawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated when it is your turn. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. The gods only know how much we need both right now. See you soon.